may be seated. You're going to stick this one out, huh? All right. Yeah, me too. Uh, that passage is kind of misleading because where we cut it off, Jesus, we all think that everyone's like, yay, Jesus, right? No, it gets pretty messy for Jesus there. He goes on and we'll, we'll talk about it a little later. He goes on and says some things that those people in that, that synagogue weren't really excited to hear. Uh, he, he does these, he quotes different passages from Kings and from Isaiah, and then everyone's kind of mad at him. Uh, have you ever had that happen where you experienced something that you weren't expected and it went the complete opposite way that you would have thought? Uh, the people in that synagogue that day had exactly that. Uh, it, 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 they, they were hit by the unexpected, but what we'll learn today is that God seems to work best in those unexpected places. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, uh, it goes on to say this in Luke, all, were, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do hear what in your hometown, what we have heard in Capernaum. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in, in, Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine through the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. And, 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 and yet Elijah wasn't sent to them and the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there was many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none was sent, none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And then all the people in the synagogue were furious. They heard this. They got up and drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill, and the, on the town that, that on, the, on the brow of the hill of which the town was built, in order that they may throw him off the cliff and stone him, but he walked right through the crowd and on his way. There's a lot of background here, and so today we're going to do something pretty unexpected. We're going to go through the background because I think the background of this explains a little bit more of what's happening in this story. So, if you have your Bibles, how many of you have Bibles? Yes, if you have your apps, how many of you have apps? <laughs> okay, I want you to go to 1 Kings. If you are a little unclear on where 1 Kings is, it's right before 2 Kings. It's helpful. On my, I'll get you the page number real quick. Um, 1 Kings chapter 17. My goal is this, that when we look at this background, and it's going to feel like, why the heck are we doing this? But my goal is as we get to, as we look at the background and we come to this section again in Luke, you'll go, oh, I get it. Okay? I want to point out three unexpected places. Uh, that God works in the unexpected places, God works in the unexpected people, and God gives us the unexpected grace. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings 17, uh, it goes, it's a story about Elijah in a very dark period of history. Elijah had the wonderful honor of walking up to the king and saying, it's not going to rain for a long, long time. He announced the famine there, and the famine was going to be bad. It was because Israel had been bad, and they had been faithless. And he announces this per- very, very popular message that went over well, and then he goes into hiding. And so in 1 Kings 17, verse 7, sometime later where, where he was hiding, the brook dried up. And because there was no rain in the land, then the word of the Lord came to him, go once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. 
I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he's moving outside of the boundaries of Israel. Hold on to that. That's important. So I went there. When he came to the town gate, there was a widow standing there gathering sticks. He called to her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I might have a drink? And she was going to get it. He called, and bring me a piece of bread, please. And she replied, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks. I'm going to go home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It's going to, that's the last meal. Uh, flour and some sticks. Uh, uh, this woman is not an Israelite. In the story, they are outside of Israel. Uh, she, she doesn't know or she doesn't worship the same God that Elijah does. So the famine is bad. She, the people are dying. And, and there's, this, is the, this is her last meal. And so kind of a tone-deaf prophet, right? Hey, this is your last meal. And so he says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do what you said. But first... Make me a small, no, small loaf. I mean, you're reading this, you're kind of wondering what kind of jerk Elijah is. This is your last meal, but cut me off a little piece, please. Uh, uh, for me, that you may bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son, for this is what the God of Israel says. Again, she doesn't know the God of Israel. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day, of the, until the, day the Lord sends rain. Okay, back then, God's had regional power, not over all regions. So when she says, your God of Israel, in her mind, God of Israel only has powers within the confines of Israel. And so he's asking her to take a very big step of faith here. Your God doesn't have power here like he does in Israel. So that's, this is where it's getting kind of fuzzy for her. And so she, she's, she lived outside of Israel where God had no power. She has no food. She has enough to last. And Elijah comes and says, bake me a cake. Break me off a piece of the Kit Kat bar if it was candy. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word spoken from Elijah. It's one of those days where Israel was in their worst way possible. They weren't following God. They weren't doing what God had asked them. They were unfaithful. They had worshipped other gods. They were far away, yet God was still working outside of Israel. Now, they never thought that God would work any place but in Israel because God only, in their mind, only loved them. But here, we see very clearly that it's an unexpected place that they would ever see God move. How many of you have unexpected places in your life where you're like, God can't move here? For Israel, it was simply outside their border. For us, it might be something different. We limit God to the places he can work when our borders, within our relationships or within our marriages, we say, God can't save this marriage. This marriage is sick. God can't save that marriage. There's no way he's going to work there. We think that God can't work in some of our jobs. We think that our family's too dysfunctional ever to function properly, so he can't work there. He can't work with our broken hearts. He can't work with our troubled minds. We, we place these walls up around our regions, and they're not to keep other people out, but what they end up doing is limiting our sight and what God can actually do. Sometimes in our life, we walk into these unexpected seasons, and we're in these places, and we start to give up. God can't work. Yet for Israel, what do we see? He's working 
just fine. It's just in places you would never thought to look. There's no rain in Israel. God's not listening to them. Why? Well, he must not be listening anywhere. No, 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 no. He was. It was just in a place he never thought to look. This reminds me of the story of Jacob. He steals his brothers. Jacob is, he, he was a weasel, right? He kind of stole things, lied a lot, and did some mischievous things. He steals his brother's birthright, Esau, steals it, and then runs. You would too if your brother was Esau and he was a big hunter man. And he said, I'm going to come kill you. And he takes off and he stays the night in this place called Bethel. And as he's sleeping there, it, was, it wasn't a good place. He puts his head down, uses a rock for a pillow. He hadn't heard of my pillow yet. He heard a rock for a pillow. And then he wakes up. And during this time, he has a dream. And God comes and reminds Jacob in this place far away from where he was, reminds Jacob, I am the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. I'm going, you are still a part of this promise. Jacob wakes up and he has this uh, come to God moment at that point. Surely God was in this place. And I had no idea. Can you look back at some of those unexpected places in your life and go, wow, God was there? I had no idea. What if, when we go into these unexpected places, what if your eyes were open saying, you know, I'm not expected to be here, but God can still move. And I wonder how many of those places we would have. Surely God's in this place and I'm going to become aware God moves in unexpected places. The next background we see shows us that God works in unexpected people. If you are in 1 Kings, fast forward to 2 Kings. It's the next one over. Uh, 2 Kings 5. It is on page 699. Craig, we're going to start in verse 7. Uh, there is the stories about a man named Naaman. Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. Syria had taken over uh, this part of, or that part of the world, and Naaman was a high-ranking official. Naaman was struck with leprosy. Uh, leprosy is not a good thing to have at any point in time, but Naaman has it. He goes to his boss, King Aram. King Aram says, you know, I hear there's some promising work on leprosy being done in Israel. You should go check it out. I think they might have a cure. I've heard they've cured this. So he goes to the king of Israel. Naaman comes, and he goes to the king of Israel. His king writes a letter, and here's what the king of Israel does. 2 Kings 5-7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore the ro- his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to quarrel with me. To tear a robe is like a a sign of grief or anger. He tore his robe. And and when Elijah heard what was happening, he heard there was a robe being torn. He said, uh, the man of God, this is verse 8, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. This is a different Elisha. This is Elijah. The last one was Elijah. This is Elijah's uh, protege. This is his follower that took over after Elijah. Uh, In those days, here's what would be expected with someone like Naaman. You would expect some kind of grand reception. Think of a state dinner. There's this grand reception, there's a banquet, there's a huge feast. Uh, Naaman would come in, sit in Elisha's house, they would talk. 
uh, they would, they, there would just be pleasantries exchanged. And then in the most humble way, Elisha would have said, now, my dear friend Naaman, what can I do for you? This is how it was expected to go down. Here's how it went down. Uh, Naaman comes and he's standing outside in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, if you are expecting a banquet and all you get is a messenger from the prophet that you're expecting to have dinner with and he just says, go wash yourself in the river down there and you'll be fine, how would you feel? You'd be a little bit offended. Naaman, offended. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry. I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of leprosy. He was expecting some kind of pageantry here instead. And now, then he gets mad at where he has to go wash. In verse 12, are not the Abana and the Fafar, the, the rivers in Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and been cleansed? So he turns and went off in rage. One of Naaman's servants came to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do a great thing, would you have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. What's unexpected about this? Anyone want to give it a shot? He's a Syrian. He's not Israel. He is outside of Israel. He is, out, he is one of Israel's greatest enemies. In the people that God would work among and cure, he's not one of them. And the prophet Elisha simply says, go and wash, and he comes back and washed. This is building to Jesus' point. Weren't there so many other people inside of Israel that needed to be cured? But God cured a Syrian. Sometimes there's unexpected people in our lives, people that cross our faces that we never think that God's grace could be for them. So these stories show us this common theme that our expectations of where God works and who God works in need to be adjusted. Think of the story of Jonah. Uh, we're going to look at Jonah later on in the summer in some more detail. But Jonah, called to go to Nineveh. We watched this, Josh and the Big Fish, the other night with Judah. And, uh, and it was, it was it's, it's eye-opening. It's been a long time since I actually listened to the story of Jonah. God, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Those people are awful. I'm going to go on a boat and go the other way. What happens? Yeah, he gets swallowed by a fish and spit out and goes to Nineveh. God cared about those brutal people in Nineveh too. And so here's Jesus. Uh, uh, we have one last stop before we get to Jesus, but here's the part where Jesus starts to quote in Isaiah. This Isaiah 61, if you want to go to your Bibles, Isaiah 6.1, kind of towards the middle and to the right. Uh, Isaiah 61. Uh, this was written to a nation who was in exile. The nation was the nation of Israel was one nation until the king Solomon died, and then there was a great civil war. Things did not go well from there. They split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then after they were after that, they would kind of not get along. They would bicker for the rest of their lives, and so God's nation, Israel, God's promised nation, was that 
Now they were among the nations. They weren't this single nation. They weren't, their pride was gone. They were in exile. They were divided into the category of other. For, for Jewish people of the day, there was Jews and then there was everybody else. If you weren't Jewish, you weren't part of them and you were considered less. And so now the people of Israel, the Jewish people of that time, were across the nations. They were kicked out of their homeland. And now they looked forward to a time where the nation would be united again, Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and they would look to passages like Isaiah 61 to bring them their hope. Here's what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he had anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He had sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was the year of Jubilee where they would wipe out debt. Everyone would be equal. If you borrowed land, you'd give it back. Uh, it, was this, it was a good thing that was never really practiced in Scripture. But this, uh, Isaiah says, this is when it's going to happen, to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. To comfort those who mourn. It's kind of a vengeance comfort. And provide those who grieve to buy and comfort for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord in display of his splendor. And they will rebuild his ancient ruins and restore the places that were long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated by generations. That's good news, right? This is something that you'd want to hold on to if you lived in exile. But we need to understand the nature of this promise. The promise is that the exile would end and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And then there's something else there. You won't have to shepherd their flocks did you catch that? The strangers will, will shepherd their flocks. It, it goes on to say everything that everybody else will do for you. And what they're seeing is that the Gentiles will serve them. They won't have to think of a menial task in your house. For me, it's taking out the garbage. I won't have to take out the garbage. Somebody else will come do that for me. It's going to be my son Judah when, as soon as he's old enough to pick up the garbage and put it in there. Can't wait for that day. The Gentiles will do stuff for you, and the Gentiles will do the hard stuff. In verse 6, it says this, And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Right now, you're in exile, and you're serving the foreign gods and the foreign rulers, But when this day comes, it's going to be flipped. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. It's kind of like supersized. Uh, You're going to get an extra large version of something. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion of your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Now, think of yourself in exile, in a place where you feel forgotten, uh, and how over time this passage would begin to be associated with the things that Messiah would do when Messiah showed up. The Messiah would come and restore the good fortunes of Israel. He would place them back in power. And then there would be vengeance on everybody else. This is how the passage was understood. Okay? So this is what Jesus comes down. Jesus in Luke 4, go back to Luke 4, we're back, and hopefully this will all start coming together. Jesus comes out from 
temptation. We looked at that last week. Other passages in some other gospels tell us that he's been teaching around the area in Capernaum. He's been healing people, blind. He's been, he's been casting out demons. He's been up to something. There's a following happening around him. And now he walks into Galilee with the power of the Spirit, and, the, and, and news about him has spread to the whole countryside. He walks in, and he was teaching in a synagogue. A synagogue is a group, as a church, that was not in Jerusalem. Uh, not everyone could go to Jerusalem and worship every Sunday, so they would make synagogues. If you had ten Jewish men in your town, you could form a synagogue. And in the synagogue, they would do things like prayer, uh, uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving, small things, not the major sacrifices. You'd have to go to Jerusalem for that. And Jesus walks into the synagogue in his hometown, and he stands up, and they had a, like a lectionary that they would read from. Certain days had this certain passage of scripture. Jesus walks in, he grabs the scroll, and any adult male would have the right to do this. He grabs the scroll, and that day's reading happens to be Isaiah 61. Listen to what he says. Spirit of Lord is on me, because he had anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He had sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners. Are we remembering? This is Isaiah 61. And then in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. If you were expecting Something else, what are you doing? You know this passage. This is something that's been read every year. You know what's coming. But Jesus leaves it off. He leaves off vengeance. And vengeance to everybody else. And then it says, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And eyes were fastened on him. So it's like, I finish, I sit there, Everybody's looking down like, is that all you're going to do? And I'm just, what next? Everyone was captivated. And then he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's his opening line. Uh, In other words, all the messianic promises you've associated with this passage, done. It wasn't a mic drop, it was a scroll drop. In other words, imagine... He, he, imagine leading with that. Everyone's waiting for you to say something. And what's the first thing you say? It's complete. He had left off the day of the vengeance of our God. And that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear how God was going to smite and curse and destroy. Yet, instead of vengeance, we have, instead of Gentiles serving, you have the day of the Lord is here and fulfilled in your hearing. But look at what he inserts. He inserts something interesting in this passage. He inserts Isaiah 58, 6, to loose the chains of injustice. He adds that. Instead of vengeance, we have loosening the chains of injustice. That's not what people wanted. That's not what they expected why would he do such a thing? In a synagogue, the, worst, the guy who read the scripture was allowed to do some kind of editing of the prophets. So it's not like this was out of the ordinary for them to insert another passage or rearrange the words. It's kind of the way they taught. The only thing you weren't allowed to do was edit the Torah. And so, but when he does this, it's okay, okay. He's not, but he leaves off the part that makes it more shocking. 
Here's why the people who lived in, in Nazareth were a select group of people that would go. They, went, they settled there in that community. They were faithful Jews who were transplanted there into the southern kingdom in order that they would remain deeply committed and wait for the Messiah to come and put the land back in pure Jewish hands. Isaiah 61 was central to their self-understanding. Their life's goal was to wait there until God comes and reverses this whole mess. The Gentiles will serve us. It's the year of the Lord's favor for us. It's vengeance for everybody else. They had, previous, they had heard previously that Jesus was, meant, uh, was ministering among who? Gentiles. And they're offended at this. And Jesus doesn't help their offense go away by leaving off vengeance for the Gentiles. He says the Spirit's on him, that's referring to baptism, and then he says, I've come to preach good news, gospel, not just to you all, but to everybody. Do you see how this might be a little unexpected? I've come to give, to proclaim freedom from the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. We can read this in two ways. We can read this in economic ways. The poor, uh, the, the downtrodden. We've become to bring good news to them. But there's another way to read this here. The poor in Israel were considered those who were crippled. The poor in Israel were the blind, the misfits, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the outcast, the ones no one ever wanted to talk to, be around, or touch, or in even some cases look at. So what Jesus is announcing is he's come to preach the gospel to the humble ones who are willing to hear it. The humble ones whose heart is open to him. That's what freedom looks like for them. Liberation, release, forgiveness, which is another form of release. What we see is, yes, he will bring healing to the blind. Yes, he will give them sight, but it's deeper than that. He will reveal God's love in such a way that his people will see God and see Jesus as the Messiah. This is, a found, this is, only, this is the foundational verse in Luke. Luke bases his whole gospel around this section. If you flip forward in your Bibles, you'll see Jesus doing actually this stuff. My Bible has little headings on it. And so if I fast forward in Luke, it'll say he's going to heal, he's, he's casting out demons, he's releasing the oppressed, he's giving forgiveness. All of Luke's gospel hinges on this verse. This is Jesus' job description. And in verse 22, now let's get to the place where people were mad. Now we understand where it's come from, why Jesus was so offensive. And in verse 22, the NIV translates it this way, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? That's not how it should be read. All spoke well. It's not necessarily a positive thing. They might just be saying this. He, he actually put together coherent thoughts. He didn't stutter over it. He did a good job with what he was doing. It, 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 could, it could say that everyone witnessed against him and were amazed at the words of grace that came from his lips. Not just gracious speaking, but that he was offering grace to the people that they didn't want to give grace to. They were amazed that he would do just that. Gracious words aren't just being eloquent, but grace was offered, and the implication that Jesus was offering a messianic benefit for all people instead of just Jewish folks is why they began to get, offen- began to get offensive. If they were all clapping for him like, well done, you did a good job, we agree with you, Jesus wouldn't have said in verse 23, 
Surely you will quote this proverb to me. It's not a proverb in Proverbs. It's just a saying of the time. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what you've done in Capernaum. And so when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? It's not, hey, that's Joe's boy. It's, isn't this Joseph's son? This, this guy? That guy is the Messiah? I, I, this doesn't make sense. It, it, it's not a nice way. And so he says, they say, hey, you're, you're supposedly doing all of these things. Prove it. If you're the good doctor, heal yourself. It's the same temptation that Satan gave him earlier in the passage. Heal yourself. Make yourself some bread. Throw yourself off the temple. Heal yourself. And this is why Jesus responds with verse 24. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. This is what I say when I go home to Yorba Linda, California. Not accepted here. I'm from Yorba Linda. No one knows where that's at. Um, and in verse 25, I assure you, this is the part, where we, where the background, that, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, and the sky was shut for three and a half years, and the famine was so severe in that land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many Israel with leprosy, that Elijah cured Naaman. And all of these people stood up, pushed him to the cliff, and they wanted to throw him off. What they would do, they'd throw him off the cliff. Hopefully he would land and then be still, and then they would pile rocks on top of him. They were going to stone him. And in some kind of jiu-jitsu way, Jesus just kind of walks through. And I wonder what they did when they got to the end of the cliff. They're like, hey, where'd he go? But Jesus gets through. It's fascinating. That part's fascinating to me. But back to this. For Luke's purposes, this was the most important story of Jesus. Do we see the unexpectedness here? All of a sudden, you see Jesus talking about unexpected people, the widow in Sidon, or the unexpected places in Sidon, unexpected people, uh, Naaman in uh, in the, the Syrian And now he points to unexpected grace. Unexpected grace meaning that the people you that should have been cut off are now receiving grace. The people who should have been objects of vengeance are now receiving the messianic blessing. And he's lining himself up with the same people of Elijah and Elijah. What does this have to do with us, right? This was Jesus' mission statement to cure the blind, to bring grace to those people. And if it's Jesus' mission statement, then it should be ours. This should be our statement. It's, uh, when I grew up, we had these, this wall uh, on, on the back of our church, and it was all of the missionaries around the world, and there would be a little pin, and there'd be their picture. And it was the idea that those are the missionaries. We stay here, and those people go out. I get to stay in America, and they have to move to some other parts of the world. This was what I grew up with. This doesn't seem to fit here, because those people are missionaries, and so are you, and so am I. We adopt Jesus' mission statement. If it's Jesus' purpose statement, it should be our purpose statement. What Luke is doing in this passage and what he does in Acts is take this mission statement and then starts to, starts to build and say, this is how Jesus did it. This is how he fulfilled it. And then it continues in the book of Acts. And this is how, after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter and the other apostles finished it. And then 
It's our turn. We step into the same line, into the same uh, mission statement as Jesus did. You can read these like little tiny nuggets of Jesus only did this as, we're, as if we're looking on the back of the wall and seeing where missionaries are going. Or you can read this and go, this is a living example of how we should be. Who are the poor? Who, well, how about blind lepers paralyzed? The religious leaders like to think it's just those people. But who are the poor around us? As a large group of religious folks who come to church on Sundays, uh, we like to make these passages a little easier to understand. But in, in when do so, we kind of take away the radical grace that Jesus was offering. It's to unexpected places, to unexpected people, and then unexpected grace is the people who Jesus actually goes and touches, actually ministers to, who he sleeps where he sleeps, who he heals, what he eats. He hung out with lepers. He touched a bleeding woman. He went into the land of the, of the Samaritans and Gentiles. All of these people are the ones he gives the unexpected grace to. And every single time, it was the religious people who were the most shocked. You know, what Jesus is, you know where Jesus is going to be? Many of us want to look for Jesus to find him. You know where he's going to be? He's going to be next to the people who are the most sick, who we think are the furthest from grace. I wonder, in 2,000 years later, uh, where are the untouchables around us? Who are the ones that Jesus would be next to? Are they the alcoholics? Are they the drug dealers? Are they the prostitutes on Aurora at night? Are they the criminals? Are they the Republicans? Are they the Democrats? Are they the socialists? We tend to put people in boxes and we say, I heard it this week from a friend of mine. I don't know how you could be this and have Jesus. We still do that. And the radical grace that Jesus comes and says, your boxes where people work, your unexpected places, I'm going right to them. I'm giving them grace. We're tempted every time to restrict the free-flowing grace that God has for everyone. In the circles that God ministers in, his circles are bigger than sometimes our circles. So the question is, who are the untouchables in your life? As I listed through just a few of them, did any of them go, ooh, not them? Was it the Democrats? Was it the Republicans? We live in a politically polarized week. Which one of those grabbed your attention? Oh, it couldn't be them. But could it be possible that we are so insulated sometimes from the world around us that we cease seeing Jesus doing his best work? If God works best in the unexpected places, if we never get out, if we never reach out, we will cease to see God moving because we never thought he would be there. And so we all come back to that part of Jacob. Surely God was in this place. And I had no idea. Unexpected grace. If you're here this morning and you place yourself among the outcasts, I assure you, Jesus would be very, very comfortable sitting next to you. The only requirement that Jesus says he has is a humble heart, one that'll simply say, I need help. And there are times when there's no prayer that's even needed to say it. Uh, Jesus still heals. 
Sometimes Jesus doesn't get asked for forgiveness, yet he still forgives. No person has fallen too far. And it's a shame that sometimes the church has done the opposite. Because that's not what Jesus would do. And be honest, it's kind of embarrassing. And in that place, I hate to be honest all the time. Jesus would offer grace to the people. Jesus would offend us today. And that's shocking. It'd be shocking who Jesus would hang out with. This was his agenda, and therefore it needs to become our agenda. Jesus came for the sick. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. And so we all start with this. I'm sick too. I need a doctor. For us who are already followers of Christ, can we sit and be challenged by this good news to all people? Or is that too unexpected for you? Can we be challenged to see our bias? We challenged to see, uh, uh, to see, challenged to see our list of untouchables. Could there be whole classes and whole parties of people that we say there are no stinking, there is no stinking way that grace could be extended to them? Yet Jesus offers grace to them. Can we just say that that? we take on the same roles as Jesus and we go to those unexpected dark places and say there's freedom for you and there's freedom for me and all we have to do is say yep I want it and that's unexpected but this is the grace of our God unexpected grace to unexpected people in unexpected places would you pray with me Father we thank you that though we never expected it, you came in the form of a child, which was unexpected. And you died, which was unexpected. But then you rose again, which again was unexpected. And so, Lord, it's in our places of, of unexpected shock where we come to you and say, can we have some of this grace? That's for us, too. So, Lord, I pray for... Um, those here who might have said, I've sinned too much, I've, I've outkicked my sin coverage, there's no way that God would ever take me back. Lord, would you bring comfort to that person? That you came especially for them. And God, for those who are uh, on the other end of the spectrum, who like to limit or who have uh, maybe said those words, I don't know how you could be this and a Christian Lord, may you challenge us to see that your grace goes everywhere. God, to those who are in the middle of an unexpected disappointment in life, where they think that you're not going to move, Lord, I pray you would meet them in that place and they would be blown away that even in that place you are active, you are working, even though they can't see it. God, would you meet us today, right here, in Jesus' name.